you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we do cry out to you. We thank you that you're alive, that you don't know a little about suffering, but you know everything about it. So meet those who've walked through these doors with a big hole in their heart, a lot of hurt in their heart, confusion and questions and to be sure, some accusations as well. Meet us in this place. Bring your truth and your comfort to us in this place. That we'd go from this place different, changed, filled with hope as we brush up against who you are in the midst of all the hard things in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a powerful video that we just saw, and that video just has a lot of these phrases just echoing in our minds and our hearts even now. The repeated why questions, we've been there. Hearing about hope, and we heard her say, hope rises up, so where is it? I don't get it. I don't see it. The fulfillment of the promise Are you still far away on high, still staring at the empty sky, still reaching out with that longing hand? For me, I hear no voice. I don't understand. Who will come and set us free? Who will come and set us free? That's a huge question that we'll be dealing with today as we take on The third in our series, Questioning Christianity. If God is all good and all powerful, why would he allow for pain and evil and suffering? And I think of that repeated phrase, who will come and set us free? And and I think it's been echoed around the world even this week. In a place like Orissa, India, where just this past week, many, many Christians' lives have been brutally wiped out. The hands of militants, churches burned and lives decimated and ravaged. I think of the family and friends of the 30 who were dragged off the bus and beheaded in Kabul, Afghanistan this past week. Who will set us free? Why? I think of what's going on in Zimbabwe. One of our our partners that are there sent us an email this week and they said, and I didn't know it, that half the country faces starvation right now. It's a huge food crisis. And, and the irony, the tragedy in the whole mix is the government is working against the problem, not for the problem. And so they're buying Mercedes and Hummers and, and all these expensive cars and giving them to people in the government, buying off people who aren't in the government to remain in power. In just a couple of months, they've spent over $500 million raiding the coffers of the government. That same money could feed that whole country for seven months. And as the fancy cars are driving around the city centers, there's people digging up the roots of trees because that's the only food there is. And kids dying from the effects of malnutrition. But we know that those cries of why and 
who will set us free aren't just the cries of a world out there. It's the cries of, of a people right here. I mean, if there was a way to electronically hook up and amplify the pain that is right in our hearts, just in this small place, in this small part of the, of the world, the roar of the pain right here would be deafening. And I think over my 25 years of ministry, the, the, the times where I've gotten right up next to it, I think of my friends who, who buried their little baby in that tiny coffin being set in a hole in the ground. Of Eric and Janet holding vigil right next to their premature born baby boy who literally changed colors before their very eyes before he died. I think of dear Mary Lou who buried three, not one, not two, three of her sons and buried her husband. I, I think of all the anguish and the evil. I, I remember this lady coming up to me at the end of a service and telling me about how her ex-husband, Rich, I remember Rich, this troubled guy who'd come in and out of the church. He'd been murdered. Only to find out that the woman who broke the news was the very one who took his life. Just twisted stuff, hard stuff all around us. All around us. And the deal is, is, as we get up against this thing called evil and pain and suffering, boy, there's some big questions. And the problem stated goes like this. If God is always good, he would destroy evil. If God is all powerful, he could destroy evil. Yet in the world in which we live, evil still exists. It's all around us. So it leaves a lot of people with this conclusion. Therefore, God isn't good. At least, he's not all-powerful. And this problem isn't just a problem for the believers of Jesus Christ or or people who have a theistic, a God-centered worldview. It's a problem for all of us because At the end of the day, we all have to deal with it and make sense of it, whether we believe in God or we don't. The question just gets framed a little different. And what I know is this. If you walk through these doors this morning, and there's a lot of hurt, that what you don't need right now is an argument. You don't need a theoretical construct that's philosophically driven or theologically driven. What you need right now is comfort. I I know that. But what we're going to do as we approach this really, really important question is we are going to look at it from a distance, trying to get a big picture of it. It is going to be a little bit more theoretical It's probably not going to connect with you right now because it hurts so much you probably won't even be able to hear that. But we'll get to the second part. And that is the question of pain and suffering of evil is not just this kind of objective question that we're looking at from a distance and trying to figure it out, the kind of stuff that you, you know, maybe talk about in a seminary context over a cup of coffee or or maybe just a couple of people who like having these kinds of conversation. There's a whole different one. 
It's personal. It's not about evil out there. It's not about suffering. It's about my pain. It's the difference between going to a philosophy lecture on the subject and picking up the book of Job, probably the oldest book in the Bible, and reading about this man's life that was just torn to shreds and fed through the meat grinder. A man who wrestled with God, where are you? I want to talk to you. And so our tack is going to be to take that big picture, kind of step back and try and see it from, from that kind of vantage point, and then we're going to get to that whole thing of comfort as we move towards the end of our message. So there's three basic answers to the question. The first is evil exists and God doesn't. That's the position of atheism. Then there's another position that says evil doesn't exist, but God does. That's pantheism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here today, but we will on the first and the third. The third says evil and God exists. That's theism. So as we wrestle with the struggles of someone who says, how can there be a God when there's so much wrong with this world? Because I just can't put it all together. So as we respond to the questions or the question of an, of an atheist or even an agnostic who's not sure, I'd like to pose a couple of questions to help us think through this. The first goes like this. Is it possible God could exist, be good and all-powerful, and destroy evil later? I don't think necessarily that the presence of evil and suffering today categorically proves undeniably that God can't exist. And is it possible that he is good, he's all-powerful, and the final dealing with suffering and evil is still to come? And is it possible that how he's dealt with it today and even in the past that we haven't paid attention to it? Is it possible that he is dealing with it, even though it may not seem like he is? In fact, when you get to the end of the story, we'll read something like this in Revelation 21. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on, on the throne said, I'm making everything new. So that's the first thing to consider. Is it possible he does exist and he's going to deal with it in the future? Here's a second question. Is it possible that something that appears pointless and useless to you and me as we deal with suffering or see somebody else suffering, is it possible that actually that could be good, that there could be good that comes out of it, that actually God could do something good through it? Let me suggest that you and I, in our lives here on this planet, at many points, voluntarily choose pain for a greater good. Sports. Anybody who's played sports knows this phrase. Fill it out for me. No pain, no what? No gain. So I think of my freshman year in college when we're all trying out for the soccer team and we got this madman Argentinian guy who's just running us literally to the point of exhaustion. I'm looking around in the middle of these practices, and guys are passing out. 
Why did we sign up for this? Because we wanted the joy of playing soccer. Why do these guys get up, drink some water, and get back on the field? Let's do it again. Because there's, there's this future goal out there that's going to be good, and this training is going to be good. For, we do it. We do it in that arena. We do it in relationships. Maybe you haven't been there yet, but let me tell you. There's times where a person that you love a lot and, and there's an impasse and there's maybe been some really hurtful things that have been said or done and you've got to go through a real painful process to get through it and you do it because you're committed to that relationship. You do it because you want to get to a point where your relationship is reconciled and whole and it's good. We do that. We do it all the time in the whole area of medicine. I went to the chiropractor this week and he told me, it's going to hurt. And then you'll get better. And I went back two days later and said, man, Bruce, you hurt me good. That was good. We, we voluntarily put ourselves often through pain for a desired good out in the future. I heard recently about this disease. It's, it's acrostic as SEPA, congenital insensitivity to pain with anhydrosis. Victims like little Gabby Gingras from Minnesota have absolutely no sensitivity to pain. They can't shed a tear. They don't sweat. Rare disease, maybe only 100 cases in the world. When Abby was just four months old, she started biting into her fingers. She didn't know what she was doing. She couldn't feel it. And her fingers are bleeding. At the age of two, they decided they got to pull out all her teeth because she's literally going to get to the point where she could bleed to death and not realize what she's doing. She could put her hand on a hot burner and scorch and shrivel her hand, and she wouldn't feel a twinge of pain. Average life expectancy, 25. Let me suggest to you that the parents of a child with SEPA have only one prayer. And the prayer is, God, help my child to feel pain. Is it possible that what appears to be useless to you and me actually could be used for good? Third question. If you're an atheist, how do you explain for evil and suffering? How do you make sense of this world? I mean, you're holding to evolution. It's not a, a God-wound-up world. It's, it's this random thing. It's the forces of evolution, natural selection. And remember, the whole theory says we're evolving and it's supposed to be getting better and better. So how do you make sense of the world that doesn't at least appear to be getting better? Consider this guy, Ferguson, who's written the book, The War of the World, 20th Century Conflict in the Descent of the West. In his book, Ferguson reminds the optimists among us who believe in the inevitable progress of man that either we forget or ignore the fact that the 20th century was the bloodiest century ever. World Wars I and II, 60 million people. Out of that, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, another 60 million people. I've read the count goes as high as 180 million people in the 20th century. Experience great great evil. I read this from an atheist in the British Independent writing an opinion editorial. He says, Sir, I like Professor Dawkins, the author of The God Delusion, am an atheist, but I cannot agree 
with the overly simplistic view that God is essentially to blame for everything. He's referring back to an article as God the root of all evil. I have come to the view that most of the evils of the 20th century were the product of the age of enlightenment and the notion that by applying rational principles, humanity could be perfected. This belief spawned the twin evils of fascism and communism. The 20th century was arguably the most bloody and brutal period in all of human history, and virtually none of this industrial-scale slaughter had religious roots. To assert, as Dawkins appears to do, that Hitler's problem was his Christianity is a fact that has apparently escaped all serious historians. He's also noticeably silent on the mass murders carried out under both Stalin and Mao. I accept that historically much evil can be laid at the door of religion. But I also find that I have regretfully to accept that the unprecedented slaughter of the 20th century is one of the end products of the rational atheism I adhere to. This is a possibility that Professor Dawkins appears to be unwilling to accept. How do you explain in your construct of how this world works the presence of evil and suffering? There's a fourth question. Is it possible that the very question you're asking, how could a good God who's all-powerful allow for pain and suffering and evil actually point more towards the proof that there is a God than there isn't? Lewis said the problem of suffering and evil was a far greater problem when he was an atheist. And here's why. Because the very question is, is crying foul. There's rules here in this game called life on this planet called Earth. And we know when things aren't right and when it's foul. But how do we know where the line is? How do we know what's good and what's evil if there isn't any God, if there is no moral absolutes to this universe, if it's just random chance? How do you know? Is it possible that the very fact that you'd ask the question gives credence to the fact that this is a moral universe because there's a moral God behind it and the plumb line of a moral obligation is strung through the very hearts of each one of us. A fifth question, not just for atheists, but for all of us. How do you make sense of the things that you've done that have hurt and brought suffering and pain and even evil into somebody else's life. How, how do you account for that? Peter Kreeft teaches philosophy at Boston College. He's written a lot of helpful things on these hard questions. If you were to visit him at his office, you'd find up on the door a cartoon of two turtles. One turtle says, you know, sometimes I just like to ask God, you know, why, why all the suffering and why all this pain and why all this misery? Why all this evil? Why aren't you doing anything about it? The other turtle looks to him and he says, yeah, I've thought about that, but then I've been afraid he might ask me the same question. What have I done about it? But it's a really an important question. How, how do you wrestle with the fact that, look, it's just not out there. I've done some of that stuff. And we can't say, well, because we're human. 
because we know there's a lot of times where we haven't done that kind of stuff. We don't always do it, but there's times where we've done great harm to other people and brought a boatload of pain and suffering and maybe even that which we would say was evil. Michael Shermer, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, author of The Science of Good and Evil, talks about the time when he once had the opportunity to to, uh, do an interview with Thomas Keneally, the author of Schindler's List. And he asked him, he said, what's the difference between Oscar Schindler, this great hero in the story, and Amon Goth, the Nazi commandant of the concentration camp? What's the difference between these two men? And he looked at Shermer and he said, honestly, not very much. Hadn't been for this war, these guys could have been drinking buddies. They could have been business partners. Not very much difference. Shermer goes on to quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, these evil people. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And it's a big question. But I think if we're honest, we, we've got to take it a little more personally. Kay Warren talks about the time she went to Rwanda. It was after 94 and all the genocide that happened where a million people were brutally murdered and raped and pillaged and all the horror. And you saw Hotel Rwanda, you know what I'm talking about. And so she prepared for this trip. She thought, you know, I'm going to be meeting these monsters that committed all this heinous stuff. And, and I have a feeling I'm going to be able to tell who they are. I'm just going to be able to see it in their eyes. She writes about it. She says, I was so self-righteous. What I found left me puzzled, confused, ultimately frightened. Instead of finding leering, menacing creatures, I met men and women who looked and behaved a lot like me. They took care of their families. They went to work. They chatted with their neighbors, laughed, cried, prayed, and worshipped. Where were the monsters? Where were the evil doers capable of heinous acts? Slowly, with a deepening sense of dread, I understood the truth. There were no monsters in Rwanda. There were just people like you and like me. So then how does, how does theism, how does a worldview that has God at the center work it out? Well, we, we certainly don't have all the answers. In fact, if I were to use kind of a similar illustration to last week, I would draw this circle now not representing all knowledge of all things, but this whole problem of evil. And I, I think it's really important for you if you're not a Christ follower, to know that what we know about this subject is very little. Very little. Little, tiny, itty-bitty slices of this big pie. We don't know a lot. We don't know a lot. We know very little. But what we know comes from God's Word. And you'll have to grant us that. We believe in God. We believe in a God who talks, who continues to talk. He's made himself known, not just through creation, but through his word. And when we pick up the word, we get some hints about what's going on here. 
And remember last week we talked about the Bible isn't just this encyclopedia of information, 66 books somehow clustered together, and you just kind of go popping in and out for subjects and trying to get little truths out of it. It's a story. It's got a beginning. It's got a middle. It's got an end. And we talked about the kind of four movements of the Bible, and it's actually the very same movements that we just saw in that video. It starts at creation. It goes to rebellion when we gave it all away, as the video said. It moves to redemption, the story of the cross, and then it ends with restoration in heaven. And so what I'd like to do is quickly run through the storyline of the Bible to help us see what does the Bible say to us about this really all-important question. And it begins with creation. And what it tells us about creation is, in the beginning, God created everything, and everything that he created was good. It was right. When he created Adam and Eve, he said they were creating his image and they were very good. There's, there's nothing wrong with creation. It's God, the creator God, creating this perfect place that was called the Garden of Eden. And life was good. It was perfect. No evil. That's the beginning of the story. What we know about that creation is he didn't create Adam and Eve like robots. They they weren't like Chatty Cathy, the little doll that my sisters used to have where you pull the string and she'd say things like, I love you. And you know, you can only hear that so many times as a young brother before you're ready to rip out the cord of Chatty Cathy. But that's what she said. I love you. I love you. She was programmed to love her owner. That's not how we were created. God gave us the responsibility and the opportunity to choose to worship him or not to worship him. That's how it all started. But it didn't take long. It didn't take long before in this risky business of free will where evil is actually a possibility for the possibility to become reality. We gave it all away. All that was right, we gave all away. How did it happen? Well, the rebellion happens in Genesis chapter 3. We find out there's a fallen angel who's already broken ranks with God. He's jealous of God's glory, wanted to be part of the action, wanted to have everybody worshiping him. He breaks from the ranks. He tempts Adam and Eve to do the same. They doubt his goodness. They reject his rule. They disobey his clear command. And everything changes. The world cracks. It twists. The relationship with God is off. The relationship with each other is off. The relationship with creation is off. This perfect place is now a place of pain and suffering and death. And the good ground of Eden's garden turns hard and there's thorns and there's thistles. We gave it all away. And we asked, well, why couldn't God create a world where we couldn't sin? Oh, why, why did he create us with the possibility Why couldn't he just, well, he could have. But we wouldn't be human. We couldn't love. We couldn't have a relationship with God. We would be robotic, programmed, cold, calculated people responding only in one way. There would be no love. There would be no love from the heart, an exercise of the will. We say, well, why couldn't he create us with a free will without the possibility of of sin? 
Why couldn't he do that? Make us free, but free so that we would never choose the wrong. That's like, why couldn't God create a square circle? It's completely illogical. The fact that he creates us free means we had to have a choice to worship him or to not, to obey him and follow him or not. It brings us to redemption. And you know, if you've not read the Bible, man, you know, there's a little bit about that good part in the beginning. And then, man, there's a whole lot, like about all the way to here, that's this bad part about rebellion. We're messed up. This is a messed up place. And then it turns in the New Testament. There's these promises in the old that it's going to, but then Jesus comes. This redemption. It's where the story gets really good. But it's really a surprise because God suffers. Christianity is the only religion that has a God who suffers. And he suffers in the person of his son who came down to this earth and lived a perfect life. So there's no reason he should have experienced pain and suffering and death because the consequences always were rooted back into the sin. And he was not Adam's descendant. He was the son of God, born by the Virgin Mary, and he knew no sin. He was perfect, and yet he suffered. And when he suffered, it wasn't like anything that you and I have suffered. Not just because he didn't deserve it, but because he took on all the suffering, all the pain, all that was wrong with this world to that point, and all that would be wrong until the end point, And it all came hurtling down, focused down, laser beam thrust, piled, driven on Christ. And that's why he cried, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Because the Son of God took on the pain and the suffering. He became sin. And in his death and his resurrection, he conquered it, bearing the pain. There's redemption. What is redemption? There's freedom. Freedom from the curse of this world. Freedom from the curse of having a fallen heart. And he brought it as he became sin for us on the cross. The Old Testament writer said it was going to happen. He was described even in the Old Testament as a man of sorrows. He'd be familiar with suffering. He'd be pierced. He'd be crushed. He'd be oppressed, afflicted. And it reminds us as we go to the cross... You know what? God already has done something about pain. He's done something about suffering and evil. And, And we live in this period between the cross and between heaven where it's this tweener place. We get tastes of heaven, but we get lots of tastes of hell. But we remember we're still living in the middle of the story. The end hasn't happened. And what is the end? It's called restoration. That's the end of the story. When Christ comes back and makes all things right and all things new. The reason we know God cares about pain is because his son suffered pain. The reason we know God cares about pain and evil is because he set up heaven and hell. Hell reminds us that God will make all things right. And everybody who wants to live life without God on this planet and cause people great harm and hurt... They can live without him forever. That's hell. And we know he cares about our pain and our sorrow because there's heaven. A place, the Bible says, where there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more suffering. It's a place that completely blows away 
creation when it was all good. Because when it was all good, the possibility of evil was there. And when it will be made all new, God says, you'll never have a tear. There'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more suffering, because the possibility won't exist anymore. But the scars of suffering will, not ours, but forever will worship the Son of God who forever will have nail prints in his hands. Who forever, if we, I don't know if we wear socks or whatever we wear in heaven, but if we see his, his feet, nail prints in his feet. That's the end of the story. It begins and ends without pain, without evil, without death and suffering. And the story is all about Christ. And what I know is you don't need, you don't need a lot of facts. You, you don't need a lot of fancy answers. What, what you really need when you're going through it is someone who will set you free from your misery. Someone who will give you hope. What you need is the answer. Who you need is Jesus Christ. And so I would just say for those of us who have friends right now, family members right now who are going through it, what we need to know is the best thing we can do is not say too much and just go and be with our loved one, our friend, and enter into their pain. The tears speak volumes. The silence, it really is golden at that point. They, they need to know that we care. They need to know that we're praying with them, for them. Praying things like Psalm 86. It doesn't just say, God, help me. Show me your mercy and your compassion. But just give me a little sign of your goodness because right now it doesn't feel good and I'm wondering if you really are good. And we pray, God, show them a little glimpse of, that you're part of this mix. You could do something good in this mix. Even now, give them a taste of your goodness. They don't need a lecture. They don't need a sermon. They need you to come in and enter into their suffering. And for anybody going through pain and suffering right now, here's what I'd say. Let your pain and suffering take you to Christ. I, I guarantee you, there isn't anything you're going through right now where you could say, he doesn't, he doesn't get it. There's no way he could know what I'm going Yeah, he does. He's the only one that there is in this world who perfectly gets it. You've been humiliated by a spouse who's been unfaithful. You've been humiliated by a boss who's been a jerk. Oh, he knows about humiliation. Hung naked on a cross. Feel rejected? Oh, he knows all about that. Physical suffering? Oh, yeah. He suffocated on a Roman cross. Keep going. You, you name it. He knows it. He knows it all. Let your pain take you to Christ. And then here's a second thing I tell you to do, and it's completely illogical. It's just not what we normally do. Embrace the suffering. Embrace the suffering means do this to it, not this to it. What I know is when it comes and it's hard, I want to push it away. I don't want this in my life. I don't want to have to deal with a wife's cancer when I've got a six-year-old. I don't want that kind of hard thing in my life. I want to push it away. 
But boy, do I love how Mel Gibson depicted Christ embracing the cross. They had a little extra biblical stuff here when the people started mocking that he was embracing the cross. You remember that part? He, he did embrace the cross, the pain of the cross, the, the, the agony, the humiliation of the cross for the better good, for his Father's glory. Embrace it, believing that hard and good can go together in God. The worst thing that ever was done was the Son of God was hung up on a cross. The greatest thing that was ever done was the Son of God was hung up on a cross for you and me. God can do good things. How? Well, he could, he could draw you closer to him. Here's what I did in the first service. I said, how many of you came to faith in Christ because of some really hard things in your life? Raise your hand. Go ahead. It's a lot of us. A lot of us. Even more in the first service. What we'd say to you that don't follow Christ right now is, Lewis is right. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse not only a deaf world, but a person like me who didn't get it until it got hard. And all of a sudden I realized, I don't have this thing called life figured out. I can't take care of it all myself. And I'm at the end of the rope and I've got only one direction to look and it's up. That could be the good right now as you embrace it. Another good could be that you realize it's through the hard things that we grow to be more like Christ. Another good would be that it's the way God's prepared us to better minister to people in pain. Turn to Christ. Embrace it. Turn to God's word. The Psalms is the place you gotta go when your heart's bleeding. Go to the Psalms. You'll find a lot of fish shakers. You'll find a lot of questioners. You'll find a lot of people wrestling with God and you'll find great comfort that God's big enough for that. And all the things that you're feeling deep down inside, you're going to find articulation through the psalmist as he cries out, opens his heart to God. And go to God's people, people like in the video who say, here am I, send me. Send me. But when it's all said and done, Here's what I encourage you to remember. That the question you have about pain and suffering in a God who's all-powerful and good, let that question mark be stamped by the cross of Jesus Christ because it's only through the cross of Christ that we can even get close to understanding how to wrestle with this important question. You don't need an answer. You need Jesus who suffered who knows all about your suffering, who will be with you in suffering, who promises to one day get rid of it and make it all right, go to Christ. The hope for this world, the hope for your shattered world. Let's pray. So, dear God, we would pray that you'd have mercy on us because we see pictures of starving kids and we read stories and our hearts are, are just traumatized by it. We see a video, we, we, we think of Hotel Rwanda or Schindler's List or the killing fields and, and our lives are just decimated by it all. And yet month after month we hold the bread and drink from the cup and, and Lord, the truth is we don't get it. Forgive us for not getting the horrors of the cross for not getting that you're a God who suffered and who's with us in our suffering and that you've come to give us hope. 
you're a God who can use it for good. And so for the person, Lord, who maybe is just now believing these things to be true, grant him faith to rest wholly on your son, their Savior who suffered. And for those of us who know and love him and find ourselves just up to our eyeballs, drowning in hard things right now, hear us as we cry out to you. Rescue us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.